Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're presenting our fourth live episode of Debunked. It's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And today we're uh, welcoming in a debunked host, Don Lyons. Uh, Don, uh, thanks for joining us. Hey, Tom, good to be here and good to be with you again. And uh, Don, I think you're uh, going to welcome in our other guests here. I'll, I'll just alert you uh, that we don't have Lynette on the line here. I'll keep trying to get get her. All right, no problem. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, welcome everybody to uh, Debunked. We're looking at uh, debunking the myth here that there are plenty of resources, but people just don't want help. So we have uh, Heather is on the line, I believe. Um, so Heather. Um, thank you for joining us, and uh, welcome to Debunk, and uh, if you can give an introduction to yourself. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Heather Hogue, and I live in Provo, and I work for United Way of Utah County. The program I work with is called the Continuum of Care, and it's a coalition of agencies in Utah County, Summit County, and Wasatch County that touch on different facets of homelessness. Um, personally, I've been working with homelessness for the last 14 years in Utah County, so I have a special interest in housing and substance use treatment. Fantastic. Thanks, Heather. Thanks again for uh, joining us. You know, before we get into debunking the myth, I'm always um, really grateful for people like yourself, Heather, out there doing this work uh, in the community on the ground. Um, I'm just curious of what, what drew you uh, to this type of work? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, my last semester of college, I took a part-time job at a soup kitchen. Um, I figured I'd be there a couple of months before I applied for graduate school. And, um, you know, it, it changed my whole career path. Um, within just a few days of working with um, individuals experiencing homelessness, I felt like it was a place I could really make a difference. And it really meant a lot for me to have somewhere to go for work every day where I knew that just being there was going to make a difference in somebody's life. And so um, it, was, it was a very unexpected career choice for me and um, one that's been really rewarding and challenging. But, um, man, I've learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like it was a, the passion kind of picked you. Uh, which it is, did, absolutely. Which is really great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, again, I really appreciate the work that you do, and I'm excited to learn more about uh, what you're doing and helping us debunk this uh, this myth that there's a lot of resources, but people just don't want help. Um, so let's let's get yeah. right into it. And, uh, Tom, let awesome. me know if uh, Lynette's able to join. We'll, we'll bring her right into the conversation. Yes, um, I believe Lynette should be here. Let's try this. Go ahead, Lynette. Okay. Good morning, guys. Hey, Lynette. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Debunk here. We're just doing a round of introductions, so you're right on time here. Uh, Heather, introduce yourself. Um, would you like to introduce yourself, Lynette? Sure, sure. Thank you guys for having me today. Um, my name is Lynette Denton. I am a certified peer support specialist in Moab, Utah, and I work as a recovery coach for USARA which is uh, Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness. 
Um, the reason that I'm here today is to share my story. Um, I have been the person that has needed to use many resources in order to get back on my feet or stay afloat. Um, and as a young single parent with a colorful background and history, um, it hasn't always been easy. I have um, overcome so many challenges and obstacles in my lifetime to get where I'm at today that it is truly just an honor to be able to use my lived experience to help others and navigate them through their life journey. Thanks so much, Lynette. And we're so blessed to have you here and being able to share your aspects of your story. And I think it goes a long way to um, for people to hear other people's personal stories. And sometimes we feel like we're alone out there. So um, your story is powerful, and we look forward to hearing from uh, aspects of that story here today. So I, I wanted well, to start, you. Lynette, uh, with yourself here. Um, you know, you, you shared some of a little bit of your background. Um, you know, could you could you just explain to our audience and share, you know, what you're comfortable with is uh, how did uh, substance use uh, disorders affect your life? Um, well, my life was very chaotic and hard um, growing up. I started um, using substances at a very young age. Um, back then, signs weren't really known regularly, so I just kind of came off as unruly and a destructive child. I spent a lot of time in juvenile detentions growing up, um, and I dropped out of high school at 16 because um, I was pregnant. Um, coming from such a small town where everyone knows everybody, um, jobs were hard to get, and because of substance use, if I did get a job, they were hard to keep. Um, I had lots of DCFS cases, um, kind of back-to-back abusive relationships. Um, Yeah, life was was pretty hard growing up um, because of substance use disorder. Yeah, thanks, Lynette. Lynette, when you were um, getting treatment, if you can share with the listeners here, what what resources were available uh, when you're undergoing treatment? Um, well, uh, the resources that were available to me was drug court, DCFS, and Four Corners. So I was arrested for, um, domestic violence and put on probation. Um, and during my time on probation, I was unable to stay sober. And so I tried to hide it, but I couldn't. And eventually, um, I got a DUI, which led to a probation violation, And then I was faced with um, either um, finishing out whatever my original sentence would have been in my first court hearing, or I could uh, go to drug court. And so I went to drug court. Um, uh, They, you know, drug court helped supply me with like tools and support and the structure that I needed. However, it was very challenging at the same time. I remember trying to get to um, all of my appointments and classes and UAs and meetings and um, work, and it was extra stressful. I didn't have my driver's license, and Moab doesn't offer any transportation. I couldn't find a place to live, and they have, like, drug trackers that come to check on you, and you're not allowed, like, associations um, are a big part of Um, drug court, so you can't really be around um, people that I knew from my past. Um, So those couch opportunities and um, 
on a safe place to lay. My head was hard to find. I just couldn't find a place to live. I remember filling out like a ton of applications um, and was just rejected um, over and over again because of my history and charges. It was um, extremely discouraging. Moab Solutions um, is a resource that helps families in emergency situations. And so I can remember when they were, um, um, they helped me out with a motel room for a few days. And I just remember being super thankful for that. Um, But then after the couple days, it was just kind of back to the uncertainty of where to lay my head. So even though I had some resources available to me, um, my main Life domain areas weren't getting met, and so it was really, really an extra struggle to stay focused and do what I had to do to get through what I had to get through to stay out of jail. So it was a challenge. Yeah, thanks, Lynette. That's a powerful story aspect. There's multiple layers of situations and connecting the dots and trying to navigate that um, you know, as an individual, is really hard in the very system. So I, I can hear the passion that you have for being a, a peer support to help others um, through um, through the situations and navigating supports. Uh, I'm curious. Before I move on to Heather here, I want to stay with you, Lynette. Um, you know, I've, I've grown up where in alcoholic families, um, and uh, substance use disorder is pretty heavy in my family. And I remember at different points. Uh, especially my dad would say, you know, this was a turning point that I knew that I was wanting to change the direction I was going. I was, I'm curious when that, you know, is there, was there a moment for you that like, this is, this is where I want to, I want to change the direction of, of my life. Absolutely. Um, when, so that last, I mean, the end of my um, addiction was, super dark and um, just a really hard place to be. I, like, woke up every day just not even wanting to um, be here anymore. And so when I got that that last DUI and then I was faced with um, prison or or um, and losing my children or really fighting to get better, like, that was absolutely my turning point. Um, I had actually done drug court um in 2005 before and successfully completed that. And um, I knew that that this was an opportunity for me to, um, to try to get my life back. And um, I just, I loved my kids so much. Um, And uh, I just, the thought of losing them was um, more than I could bear. And uh, I just felt like if I didn't, take that opportunity and get better then, I don't know. I can't quite say that I would still be here if I was still in my addiction and and didn't take that opportunity. Like, I just felt like I was at the end of my addiction one way or another. So that was definitely my turning point. Yeah, thanks, Lynette. And I'm glad you're here, Lynette, uh, for here for your kids and and being able to share your story. And, again, thank you uh, for your strength and and being able to do that for other people. Yeah, I, I wanted Thank to turn you. to uh, Heather. Um, you work at United Way, and I want to dive into the questions about resources because we're debunking the myth, the idea that there's you know plenty of resources people just don't want to help. Um, so, Heather, you know, 
you work have some experience working in rural areas of Utah where there might be high rates of um, substance use disorder there. And could you talk about the resources or maybe the lack of that are in those, in those rural areas in Utah? Um, yeah, definitely. You know, particularly in rural areas of Utah, there really are a, lot, a lack of resources. Even in bigger areas, like I, I live in Provo, um, there are not a whole lot of medical detox beds. You know, something I learned pretty early on that was a surprise to me, that there are types of substance use disorders that actually require medical detox, like alcohol. If, um, if people have experienced alcohol dependency for any length of time, it's dangerous to cold turkey them. You, you have to medically detox. And so even in these bigger areas that are not, they're more urban and less rural, you just don't have the resources for things like that. So when you look at these rural communities that maybe don't have the population, the budget, the infrastructure that some of the more urban areas do, um, you know, in, in, in general, we're really not prioritizing those, those resources in our communities. Um, and I think that's a really multifaceted issue. Um, in my experience, a lot of people struggle to identify themselves as having, like, a substance use disorder. So I think it goes greatly unreported. And then I think people also fear seeking help because of, of stigma or uncertainty. And so there, therefore we have communities that don't really see what a serious problem it is, like right in our backyard. And I think in many ways we as a society are still kind of coming to terms with substance use disorders being an illness rather than like a moral failing. Um, we expect that people are going to be able to will their way out of their just like quit cold turkey, and that's just not reality. So until, like, our communities are really committing to treating substance use disorders as an illness, unfortunately, we're just not prioritizing treatment. 100%. Uh, thank you, Heather. I, I want to ask one more question, if we can. Uh, I'm looking at my part. well, talking to my partner here, Tom. I know we're getting close to the break here, but if I can sneak in one question uh, for you as a follow-up, Heather. Um, could you talk about the connection uh, between the lack of resources and people's that might impact people's willingness to seek support, and kind of the connection uh, between the um, you know the resource, the lack of resources, and discouraging someone from seeking uh, treatment? Um, you know, absolutely. Um, one of the things that people don't realize is that health. It's hard to find. And just a few weeks ago, I had a call from a friend that was looking for help for her daughter. Um, she was finally sort of accepting she needed help with substance abuse treatment. But the daughter doesn't have insurance. She doesn't qualify for financial assistance. Um, she couldn't find anywhere that would take her for inpatient because she's going to have to med medically detox from, from what she's dealing with. Um, so it's kind of an unfortunate reality that human beings who are wanting help can't get it due to lack of resources or lack of affordability. I mean, I'm, like, in services, and I spent hours on the phone trying to find a place that we could send her daughter to, um, and we didn't find anywhere. I don't know where she ended up going. I don't know what they ended up doing, but this is me as, like, a social worker trying to find this. Imagine someone being in crisis and having to call and expend emotional resources here that they keep getting rejected and they, they don't have the money or they don't have the connection and they're in crisis. 
They've used all of their emotional reserves by admitting that they have a problem and that they need help. And then it's one closed door after another. And, you know, I think Lynette mentioned a really important factor, too. We don't consider the challenges that start coming into people's lives when they have a substance use disorder, like transportation. They don't have a driver's license to go to different places. They may not have Internet access. They may have limited phone minutes. It's hard for me to, like, understand now with my unlimited data plans and everything. But there are a lot of people that have a finite number of minutes on their phone that are paid for, and they can't afford to pay for more. There's so many of these little micro-challenges that are involved with seeking help, and the resources are so limited in the first place that it becomes very difficult for people to navigate that system on their own. And if they don't have an advocate, or even if they do have an advocate, you know, the resources sometimes are just not there or not equipped to deal with their needs. Yeah, thank you, Heather. Uh, Tom, I think we're ready for one of those breaks. Are we right? Yeah. Right down, down here? Yes, just uh, just about ready. Uh, before we go to break, and just reset the scene, uh, you're listening to Access Utah, obviously. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are uh, presenting a live episode of the podcast Debunked, which debunks myths surrounding harm reduction. Um, and today we're debunking the myth there are plenty of resources, but people just don't want to help. And so, Don, before we go to break, I just want to ask you, uh, what are some available resources for those seeking substance abuse disorder treatment in, in the tribal communities? Yeah, thanks, Tom. You know, it's pretty similar to what Heather was, was sharing. It's, the, it's, it's uh, the lack of infrastructure, and I think Heather's point, and Lynette talked about it too from a, from a firsthand experience, is, is those micro systems and, and those micro infrastructure on a personal level to get to point A to point B, that's a real thing. Um, in tribal communities, you know, we have the mental health services from the Indian Health Services, but historically the Indian Health Services is super underfunded. It's only funded at 50% of where it, it needs to be funded uh, to service its communities. Um, but there are still mental health facilities there. Um, you know, lack of treatment beds is a real thing in a lot of uh, tribal communities when the need is there. Uh, but tribes also have access to traditional uh, medicine and traditional forms of recovery and healing. You know, some of those uh, could be sweat lodges, you know, language tables, uh, various ceremonies. Um, and there's over close to 600 fairly recognized tribes, so each tribe is, is unique in its own way. Uh, but a lot of tribal communities and also urban uh, communities have access to, uh, you know, traditional healers and uh, traditional uh, helping services. There's also Wellbriety, which is a big movement in, in Indian country, and the Red Road Recovery. Um, so there is there is few um, important uh, resources within tribal communities uh, to help folks. Um, but, you know, what Heather talked about, the infrastructure, the need to invest, um, and also to invest not just in the brick and mortar of the buildings, but also in highly skilled folks that are willing to work um, in tribal communities and um, and help out. So, yeah, there's there's some resources, but there's opportunity for definitely improvement and growth there. Well, let's do take that break that Don mentioned. We have with us uh, Don Lyons. He is host of the podcast Debunked. We also have with us uh, Lynette Denton, who's with USARA, Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness, and Heather Hogue with United Way of uh, Utah County. 
Uh, this is a live episode of Debunked on Utah, uh, Utah Public Radio and Access Utah, and we're debunking the myth. There are plenty of resources, but people just don't want to help. We're going to, uh, after the break, uh, come back and talk about uh, stigma associated with substance use disorders. That'll happen following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Auto Evolution, owned and operated by Ron Stagg, keeping Cache Valley automobiles on the road for more than 20 years with service, repair, and maintenance. Located at 347 West Airport Road in North Logan. Information is available by calling 435-753-2521. Join us here on Utah Public Radio throughout the week for Utah State University Extension's Ask an Expert, featuring timely information from raising your own backyard chickens to keeping our waterways clean and tips promoting mental wellness at work. If you've missed the latest segment for the week, you can find all the Ask an Expert features on our website, upr.org, and on our UPR app. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and we're presenting another live episode of the podcast Debunked. That's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance abuse disorders, and homelessness. And we have with us uh, Debunked host Don Lyons. We also uh, have with us uh, Lynette Denton, who is with uh, USARA, and Heather Hogue who is with United Way of Utah County. And we're glad that you have joined us uh, today. Listen to this live episode of uh, Debunked. So I'd just like to uh, jump in here. Uh, I'll go to uh, Lynette uh, first. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could describe what stigmas you faced re- relating to having a substance use disorder. Um, I've... <laughs> So where do I begin? Um, I know that in my um, addiction, I heard a lot of um, junkie, common criminal, troublemaker, um, worthless, bad mom, once a junkie, always a junkie. Um, I'm still currently um, facing some stigma. And as of today, today's my seven-year recovery day. And so, um, but still facing some of the stigma, for instance, I have three felonies on my record that I'll have forever um, because when I was arrested, I um, gave a positive UA sample and was charged with internal possession, which were felonies back then. And um, and because of um, the domestic and violence, you know, just the stuff that kind of comes with addiction, um, I don't qualify for an expungement, and so um, I'm permanently branded as a criminal. Um, 
so just those kind of stigmas are um, are things that I faced, and I still see the stigma today with being a recovery coach. Um, like in our rural area, um, harm reduction is something that um, is fairly new to Moab. Um, it's just been kind of starting to be learned about and known in the last couple of years. And we face a lot of pushback and a lot of um, stigma about enabling um, addiction and, and all of this kind of stuff. And so the stigma is still very, very thick today. And, uh, and it, it can, um, you know, I believed the things that people told me um, back then. And um, it took a long time. In fact, I still work really hard today to... Um, you know, um, for positive self-talk and, and, and that I do belong here and just knowing I'm enough, um, those things are so embedded in me, um, just deep ingrained in my soul. And so I work through them every day um, as a coach. That's what I try to help others through as well. But it's, it's uh, pretty pretty deep here. <laughs> I have a follow-up question. So you, you now work as a coach with folks. How do you... How do you help them to overcome stigma? Um, well, for we as USARA, um, as a team, are really focused on positive language and um, building up people's self-esteem. And um, but, like in the community, also giving presentations a lot about positive language. Um, so lots of role play, lots of setting goals, um, lots of positive affirmations. Um, and also just educating um, the participant and the community as a whole about um, stigmatizing um, languages and how to overcome this. And um, it's definitely challenging, but um, you can, uh, you know, once you see um, the participants start to... um, like the change in them from the stigma to knowing like their worth and their value. Um, it, it's the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. And so we just work really hard in those areas in particular. I want to turn to uh, Heather next. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to how stigma has impacted people with substance use disorders in rural areas. Um, you know, absolutely. I think um, one of the difficulties with substance use disorder is that as a society, we tend to think about it as a moral failing and not as an illness. Um, When you're in a small town or a small community, everybody knows everybody. Um, You get your, you go to the pharmacy and it's, you know, your, your stepsister's cousin or, I mean, everybody knows everybody. So um, people, feel like not only are they not worthy of help because they have this moral failing that we sort of impose upon them, they're also worried about sort of tangible things like losing their job, losing their status in a community, losing their religious group, losing their family members if they seek help. Because while seeking help shouldn't be a secret thing, it should be a private thing if an individual chooses for it to be so. But when you get into these smaller and more rural communities, that's not always the way that that works um, because everybody knows everybody. 
Let me turn to uh, Don. Um, what are some of the stigmas uh, people with substance use disorders face in tribal areas? Yeah, it's a pretty similar to what Heather um, was talking about. That's kind of where I want to start at the small knit uh, close communities, even in big urban settings. I'm, I'm from Detroit. Uh, Detroit, Chicago, L.A. are some of the main hubs. Minneapolis, for re- during the relocation era, uh, where you know tribes were, or people were sent there to work in factories. Even in these big rural, uh, big uh, urban areas, it's a close knit community, so people do know what's happening, and that's both a uh, protective factor and also potentially a risk factor, especially when it's talking about seeking help uh, in the community for everything that. Heather was talking about, you know, um, you know, losing status or uh, not feeling a sense of belonging or shame and in, in going and seeking support with a substance abuse um, disorder. The other thing is words have power, you know, and I think Lynette did a good job explaining that, how she works through uh, as a peer support. And uh, also Heather talked about society, um, why how we talk about things is generally how we think about things. And we need to understand that words have power. I was a behavioral health director for a little bit in an urban clinic, and I always tell the clinicians I was overseeing is we have to be careful when we diagnose people uh, because it becomes a naming ceremony. You know, traditionally in a lot of indigenous communities, you, you get multiple names. You get names at birth. And maybe you when you get older, you go through different ceremonies. You get uh, another name. Um, and going way back, traditionally, you know, if you go to different communities, people have different names for you. Uh, based on, you know, what you bring to that community and, and um, how people see you. But those naming ceremonies are really important uh, because when you get those names, they kind of call you to be something. And uh, when we're diagnosing people, um, I think sometimes when we're not very clear and don't have all the information, you know, we're, we're, we're almost kind of blaming and shaming in different ways. I know there's a need for billing and all those things. Uh, but we just have to be careful how we use uh, words um, in tribal communities. Um, there is there's a there's a a reawakening of bringing back language, indigenous languages in communities, and our languages are really verb based, meaning that you're talking about your relationship to something, not about a thing. Because English is about nouns and naming something, and a lot of indigenous communities, it's about your relationship to things. Um, so I think that goes a little bit, um, you know, goes a long way to kind of break down the uh, stigma in tribal communities to understand the relationship of how we need to support each other and, and sense of belonging. There's also elements of racism in a lot of um, communities, especially communities that border, um, you know, predominantly non-native uh, communities. And that racism is another form of stigma. You know, there's there's the... Um, old saying, uh, you know, drunk Indian. Um, and uh, that has a long history. <laughs> you know, the, the settlers came in and uh, provided alcohol and the means to just take the land away, uh, to sign paper when there's no understanding of exactly what was going on in tribal communities. Um, and that, that goes, that ripples through the generations um, there. And there's also idea that because of historical trauma and lateral violence in tribal communities, that Sometimes unhealthy norms are normalized, uh, meaning that, you know, growing up in an alcoholic family, it's, you know, that's normal. This is how it is. That's the way it needs to be. And um, that's difficult, difficult to break. 
uh, but it is possible to break that. And that goes to uh, stigma and the help-seeking behaviors. And um, I think Heather talked about it is uh, we, we think the substance use disorders is, is a moral failing. Uh, but it is, it's an illness. And uh, if we start thinking about in that way, it helps us understand that it's not what's wrong, but what happened. And once we understand what happened, we can get more to actually building bridges and access to help and support. Uh, when we think of what's wrong with you, we hear that, and if we're all honest, we've probably said that at different points. What's wrong with you? But that gets the blame and shame. And uh, Lynette talked about, you know, the self-talk is a real thing. And we have to remind ourselves we are worthy to seek help. We are worthy um, to live a sober life. We are worthy to be reconnected to our families and communities. And that goes a long way to break down stigma at the individual level and then the community level, too, um, creating that healthy space to be trauma-informed uh, to tackle those things is, um, is important. Then before we go to the next uh, section here, I want to uh, have us talk a little bit about the terminology we're using Hopefully we're trying to set a good example here, right, on the podcast. Um, and people may notice that we're, instead of saying substance abuse, we're saying substance use. Instead of uh, saying drug dependence, we're using the term substance use disorder. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. That's where words have power. Um, you know, we're, if we start educating ourselves and talking about things different, then we can start thinking about these things different, and we're thinking about it different then we, we can really go about uh, changing the dynamics of things. So you're right. Um, you know, years past, it was drug uh, dependence, drug abuse, drug habits. Um, but that really goes to that deficit mindset of looking at um, always dependent on something. And if we're really about change, then we need to build on the resilient factors. It's not meaning that we're glossing over the issues but we're focusing on how, what's the positive things? What are, how can we frame things with building off the resilience? And the substance use disorder kind of lends ourselves to understand the resilience factors, that it's not a blame and shame about an individual, but it's about the individual might be struggling with this, um, with this illness, and how do we create ladders and bridges of support and be there for that person and see the humanity in people? Um, so, you know, another example is, you know, it's, Clean or dirty, we've heard that before, talking about uh, substance use disorders. And um, use and unused, um, and we're, we're trying to get those languages, those words have a really uh, strong, um, powerful way to break down stigma um, in, in communities. Um, you know, a couple other ones, you know, addict, uh, abuser, user. Um, you know, I've, I've grown up in um, families that have, kind of change cycles and you know people in recovery use that way to describe it which is perfectly fine um but folks in trying to help other people you know we'd be mindful of how we use the words and how we we have to recognize each other's humanity and i think the changing of how we describing things will help us get there a little bit quicker um so i'm on board with trying to understand and, and speak in a different way um, because we got to continue to find ways to support each other and uh, recognize each other and uh, really help each other. And, and, you know, Heather, conversations about rural Utah, it's really similar to tribal communities. You know, some of them are rural places, but some of them are not, and also an urban uh, setting. So if we start using this language, what I hope is that we can see that we have a lot more in common than differences. 
and that will go a long way to uh, to break down stigma. Well, let's uh, take another break. When we come back, uh, more, of course, on the podcast. It's Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're presenting another live episode of Debunked, uh, which uh, debunks myths regarding harm reduction. Uh, and the myth we're uh, busting today is there are plenty of resources, but people don't want to help. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, ask about some experiences in finding housing. This uh, this season of the episode, we're talking about uh, substance use disorder, harm reduction, and homelessness. Uh, so we'll talk about that aspect. We're going to be talking, hopefully, time permitting, about harm reduction, uh, that term, and all of that following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. Ed Stokes Nature Center Canyon Jams, presenting Highline Drifters, August 6th at 7 p.m., located at Vaughn Bear Park in Providence. Information at loganature.org slash canyon jams. Hello, listeners. I'm Shireen Gorbani, Salt Lake County Councilwoman. Join us for both sides of the aisle. This is a weekly debate over politics, policy, and big issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices on the right, in the center, and on the left. That's me. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing the residents of this state. We prove that you can still put Republicans and Democrats in a small room and have meaningful dialogue. Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jasmine Mesa, one of the bilingual reporters at Utah Public Radio. This year we have been working on increasing the diversity of voices you hear on UPR, and that is where I come in. I produce news stories in Spanish each week, and right now I've been reporting a lot of COVID-19. But as things continue to open up, I will be reporting on community events and other resources. Tune in on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. to listen to my stories in Spanish and visit upr.org to read them in English. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're presenting a live episode of the podcast Debunked. That's the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. This time we're debunking the myth. There are plenty of resources, but people just don't want the help. We're joined by the podcast co-host Don Lyons. We're also talking with Lynette Denton who's a coach with the Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness, or USARA, and Heather Hogue, who is with United Way of Utah County. Let me just mention here, before I turn it over to Don for the next uh, segment, uh, the Debunked Podcast was created by Utah State University Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USU Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Resources, Department of Kinesiology and Health Science, and Ut- USU Extension. The program is made possible by SAMHSA, uh, Utah Public Radio, and Community Partners. So, Don, uh, take it away for the next segment. All right. Thanks, Tom. I want to go to Lynette. Um, you know, you Prior, you talked about housing, and Heather did a good job talking about those those in-between items to get us to the point of uh, seeking help and getting access and, and things like that. I want to specifically start drawing in on the housing um, issues that you might have had in the past, Lynette. And if you could share what resources were available to help you uh, get some stable housing. has always been, um, it was a nightmare (laughs) when I was first trying to 
get back on my feet. And still today, I think if I had a magic wand for all of the participants that I work with, it would be a housing magic wand. Um, When I first got out of jail um, and I knew I was going to be going into drug court, I was able to stay with a friend, but only for two weeks. Um, And then because of my long history of domestic violence, I was actually able to stay at um, a women's shelter that we have here locally, but um, they had, um, and it was so safe and amazing. It was like the first safe place I had been in years, Um, but 90 days was their limit. And so, um, and and today that's no longer an option for women um, unless you have experienced domestic violence in the past 30 days. So I actually really lucked out um, when I was first um, trying to establish housing Um, however, um, I mentioned before, I applied to many different housing options. In fact, when I got out of jail, I went over to the housing authority and I just, um, I applied for every single kind of housing option that they had. Section eight, um, low income, um, those self-help build your own. Um, and I was denied all of them. Um, at least all of the um, the low income and the Section 8. For our Section 8, it was this huge waiting list, um, about three-year waiting list, in order to get to that. And by the time I came up on that, they had been, um, like, they have gone through multiple employees, and somehow my name got lost. And so um, I had to start over on that list which was pretty devastating, although with my felonies, I wouldn't have qualified for it anyway. Um, But eventually, because all the housing options um, kind of crushed out on me, um, I took a job in a laundry as a laundry position in a hotel, um, and it was um, notoriously known um, as one of the worst employers in, in Moab, but I took it because um, housing was an option. They provided housing. Um, so <laughs> I took the job because I had to have somewhere to live. And when I got into the trailer that they provided for housing, the walls were covered in mold. The floors were falling in. Um, but I just remember feeling super grateful for that moment because um, – now I had a chance to try to, like, move forward and get my kids back, um, who, which were in DCFS custody at the time. And I did manage to clean it up, you know, and, and make it somewhat of a home for myself. Um, but that was, like, those were my housing options when I was trying to get um, back on my feet in the beginning. And so um, to fast forward six years, though, um, I actually filled out one of the self-help builds, and six years after um, I filled it out, I got a phone call asking if I was still interested in building my own home. And over the over the those six years, like I was reestablishing myself in the community as sober and building up my credit and doing like all the things that I needed to do to improve my life again. And so. I actually qualified for that self-help build and am currently building my own home right now. 
and uh, due to move in August 20th. So that's pretty exciting. But the, to get to this moment was so hard. Um, I don't even know how else to explain it other than just devastating and just so challenging. That's fantastic. Congratulations on that. That's exciting and, and quite the 180. And um, thank you for okay. sharing the importance of having stable housing is a essential building block to get people on, on steady ground um, and continue to move forward in, in, a, in a healthy way. Heather, real quick, I want to I want to pivot to you, to you. And um, you know, Lynette shared some of the barriers and some of the issues that she had to walk through to get her to a point where she's at now. And Heather, if you could just share some of the items that you think what what could be done to lessen the burden, lessen the the barriers for folks like Lynette to get stable housing and uh, get the support they need uh, to get on get on the right track there. You know, we have to stop thinking of housing as a reward for good behavior and think about housing as a human right. And um, when we have that shift in our mindset as a society, a lot of these barriers are going to fall away. Um, she, I, Her story is one I've heard a hundred times about people struggling to find housing and not being able to find housing or qualify for projects if you're lucky enough to have Section 8 vouchers in your rural community. Or, I mean, housing is a human right. We have to start thinking about it that way. Uh, thanks, Heather. Yeah, it's, how we think is actually it depends. Uh, we change our actions and we change our thinking. So thank you uh, for sharing that. Well, Tom, I want to um, give it back to you here. I know we got a couple more questions, and we're getting close on time. Certainly so, yes, uh, getting getting to the end of here. Just uh, quickly, I'll turn to Lynette first on this one. Uh, what does the term harm reduction mean to you? So harm reduction to me is meeting people where they're at and just loving them um, with no um, expectations um, and trying to keep them safe just by reducing negative consequences associated with drug use. And uh, same question to you, uh, Heather. You know, I think Lynette said it wonderfully. Um, you know, I think about it keeping people as healthy and safe as possible until they're ready and able to make long-term um, addressing of barriers in their lives. Uh, Don, I'll, I think in the interest of time, I think the, those were very well-said answers. Uh, why don't we go to the next uh, <laughs> the next question? Yeah, definitely. Um and this is Lynette and Heather. I think we've been trying to be consistent in asking a similar question of this for folks coming on debunked here. Um, but let me start with Lynette. Um, you did an awesome job explaining harm reduction in a very accessible way for people who might have just heard it for the first time. Um, just thinking for people out there listening for our audience, um, what what things, uh, what, what can we do to help? Maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a close friend that are struggling um, with substance use uh, disorder, and what what words of advice uh, would you would you give to those family members, and maybe someone who's listening and debunking right now might be struggling themselves uh, with that. So, just some words of wisdom and some encouragement, and um, we'll start with Lynette. I would say um, the best way to support people would be um, just love them, um, no matter what. Support them, 
um, help guide them through the challenges that they face, mostly remind them that they matter in a world that's so condemning. Um, there are a lot of resources um, to help support um, individuals that are struggling with substance use. And if it's hard or frustrating, just help um, guide them to resources that can help support them or um, um, uh, just, uh, I don't know, patience and love is uh, what's going to help support them the best, try to meet them where they're at. Yeah, that goes a long way. Heather, I want to pivot to you here uh, before we start wrapping up. Um, it's kind of a similar question, but I, I think I want to ask you if you're speaking to someone who's a believer in this myth, to believe that, oh, there's just a lot of resources and people just don't want help. Um, you know, what? how would you approach that person? Um, and, you know, what would you say? I would say if you're lucky enough to not have loved ones who are struggling to find support and help, then pay that good fortune forward and volunteer to help individuals in your community that are struggling. Look for agencies in your community that work with poverty, donate your time, um, and through service and experience, you're going to gain understanding and some perspective. Thanks, Heather. Yeah, getting, uh, you know, understanding, putting yourselves in people's shoes goes a long way uh, to helping uh, other folks. Um, Tom, I think we're getting close to the to the time frame here, and watching I'm watching my watch here, <laughs> and I want to follow your lead. Uh, but we we're looking at there's uh, plenty of resources, but people just don't want the help with today's um, myth. Um, and thanks for Heather and Lynette to uh, help us explore this and uh, debunking uh, this myth today. But I'll hand it over to you, Tom, for any any last words, any questions we can sneak in there. Um, I, I think uh, I think we're just out of, about out of time here, so I, I think we covered the uh, the topic very very well. Uh, we've had with us uh, on the program uh, today um, Lynette Denton, who is a coach with USARA in Moab. That's Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness. Uh, Lynette Denton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is such an important um, conversation to have, and I'm just really grateful. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And uh, Heather Hogue has been with us. She's with United Way of uh, Utah County. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And um, we, of course, have had with us the host of uh, Debunked, uh, Don Lyons. Don, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Lynette and Heather, for joining us. Another uh, great uh, sharing on Debunked here. And we'll be back uh, next month with another live episode of uh, Debunked right here on Access Utah. So stay tuned for details uh, on that. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Just uh, one more time, give the credits here. Uh, Debunked is uh, the um, only uh, podcast in Utah combining evidence-based health practices and with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes, debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorders, and homelessness. And the debunked podcast was created by the Utah State University Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, Department of Kinesiology and Health Science, and USU Extension. The program is made possible 
by SAMHSA, Utah Public Radio, and uh, community partners. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Tourism Association, advocating Utah's visitor economy and hosting the annual live Utah Tourism Conference, August 10th through the 13th in Ogden, featuring breakout sessions, destination discovery, and events registration. Information available at utahtourismconference.com. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.